Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Tony Blair at the time of the Belfast Agreement spoke of the hand of history being on him. I, I don't feel that, but if it is, but nonetheless, there, there is something odd about that. My grandfather was arrested. He took part in the rebellion in, in the 1916 rebellion and was arrested and was held um, in Frangoch in Wales. They, they were surprised. The Irish, um, the people from home were surprised that the guards were all speaking Welsh and the Irish were all speaking English. And there was when the beginnings of, sort of the ironic, the, all the ironies that surround the relationship between the two islands. And uh, anyway, it's, it's uh, interesting to be here in the belly of a whale a uh, hundred years later. In, in 1867, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa, a member of the Fenian movement, also known as the Irish Republican Brotherhood, that would be also the IRB, Sir, he was serving a life sentence for treason. He was moved to Millbank Prison in London, where he was overseen with great care, with the gaslighting left on in his cell at night. According to his biographer, he was regarded as the most troublesome prisoner in the institution, and news of the little punishments and received for petty infringements of the rules became an important part of Fenian propaganda um, over the next few years. And two different inquiries actually took place into conditions in which he and his fellow Fenian prisoners were being held. And after the second of these, it was decided that the prisoners would be released on condition that they did not return to Ireland. Thus, in um, January 1871, O'Donovan Rossa arrived in New York, where he was greeted as a hero. Among the friends he made in New York was Patrick Ford, the editor of the Irish World newspaper, which had a circulation of 125,000. And in 1876, um, Ford and O'Donovan Rossa set up what they called a skirmishing fund in America to assist in the planning and carrying out of a bombing campaign in Britain. Um, Ford wrote, language, skin colour, dress, general manners are all in favour of the Irish. In other words, that they wouldn't be noticed as they arrived with this newfangled dynamite that could, a, a single individual could bring. So using the pages of the Irish world, Ford and O'Donovan Rossa um, collected more than $20,000 within a year. While some of, um, among the nationalist Irish-American groups, they supported the idea of a bombing campaign in Britain, they viewed with dismay the lack of restraint and, ca- and caution in O'Donovan Ross's violent rhetoric. John Devoy, who for many years was one of the leaders of a group called Clown Nagale, and he was, uh, you know, the leader really of the main nationalist group in America, and he will appear again, he will appear again later. He believed um, that, quote, O'Donovan Ross had given the British um, ample warning of his plans through a desire for notoriety and theatricality, thus jeopardising any future or current Fenian initiative. O'Donovan Rossa was defiant in the Irish world. He wrote, quote, I am not talking to the milk and water people. I'm talking to those who mean fight, who mean war, and who know what war is. When an enslaved nation can produce men who are brave and daring enough to risk life and to face death for the mere glory of showing that the national spirit still lives, that nation is not dead, and those men should be encouraged instead of repressed. As the arguments within Irish America became more heated, O'Donovan Rossa began drinking heavily. John Devoy, who discovered that O'Donovan Rossa had also misappropriated funds, uh, um, um, commented that, quote, he is now so bad that I fear the only way to save him is to put him under restraint. He can't eat or sleep. Even when sober, O'Donovan Rossa was making himself a nuisance for Devoy uh, um, and his colleagues in the United States who were seeking to make an alliance known as the New Departure with Parnell and the Irish Parliamentary Party in Ireland. In other words, to get all of the groups who favoured an independent Ireland together, including the groups who favoured the use of violence, including the ones who favoured parliamentary politics, to get all of them under one umbrella known as the New Departure. Um, and threatening to dynamite Britain would not be helpful in the efforts to create a united movement within Irish nationalism. O'Donovan Rossa, increasingly determined, bombastic and indiscreet, matched his incendiary rhetoric with action. In January 1881, his followers exploded a bomb in Salford, the first time such a bomb that you know, the new dynamite had been planted in Britain to further a political cause. The bomb destroyed some shops, injured a woman and killed a seven-year-old boy. 
the British authorities who began to monitor the activities of O'Donovan Rossa in the United States um, observed that he had all the ruthlessness of a dangerous conspirator without any of the guile. Slowly and without much difficulty then, the British infiltrated O'Donovan Rossa's organisation. Nonetheless, the movement continued to bomb Britain sporadically over the next few years. The culmination of the campaign was Dynamite Saturday um, in January 1885. It was noted by Henry James in a letter to his friend Grace Norton in Boston. The country is gloomy, anxious, and London reflects its gloom. Westminster Hall and the Tower were half blown up two days ago by Irish dynamiters. 18 months earlier, a young Irishman living in Liverpool, Thomas J. Clark was arrested in London as one of O'Donovan Ross's followers. Using evidence of an elaborate bomb factory discovered in Liverpool, the Crown charged him and others with treason. The plan, it seemed, was to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Clark was sentenced to life imprisonment, and he would eventually become what the historian Ruth Dudley Edwards has described as, quote, the spider at the centre of the conspiratorial web that would lead to the 1916 rebellion in Dublin more than 30 years later. He was, in her words, able, vengeful, focused, selfless and implacable. Clark's time in prison, he began his sentence in Millbank in 1883, would include much severe hardship, including um, periods, many periods of solitary confinement. Having served a lengthy sentence in English jails would give Clark the sort of mystique that arose from having sacrificed much for Ireland and survived. In prison, he managed to connect and almost associate with colleagues and allies. Like many revolution, Irish revolutionaries of the 19th century, including O'Donovan Ross himself, Clark would eventually produce a volume of prison memoirs. He described, quote, the dismal dark side full of wretchedness and misery that even now I cannot think of without shuddering. And strange as it may seem, the bright side too, the side which I can look back upon now with some degree of pleasure and pride. That pleasure and pride included a sense of companionship and, and, a, and a sort of arrogance in dealing with the regulations and with prison authorities. As with O'Donovan Rossa during, during his incarceration, there began a campaign to publicise the sufferings and the ill-treatment of the Irish prisoners, including Clark, in British jails. By 1890, the Amnesty Association had 200,000 members, and slowly the campaign became more vocal and more broadly based. Pressure on the government to release the prisoners continued through the 1890s until in 1898, Thomas Clark was released. He was 41 years old. His years in prison had led him to see that spies and informers, as well as careless planning, had done great damage to a movement whose aims he planned to further now with determination, single-mindedness and seriousness. He returned to Ireland. He spoke at a few gatherings in his honour. He fell in love with Kathleen Daly, the 20-year-old niece of one of his comrades. And soon then he went to New York um, and um, he continued to conspire against British rule in Ireland there. When Kathleen followed him, they got married. And having come from a large and noisy family, she found that she was living with, quote, a very silent man. Those terrible years developed the habit of repressing every sign of emotion and made him suspicious of every stranger. Clark in New York was rescued by that same John Devoy, who had disapproved of O'Donovan Ross more than 20 years earlier. Since Devoy was setting up a newspaper, he appointed Clark his assistant as well as general manager. Clark was effective and self-effacing. He was in a good position to, to assess members of the new generation of Irish revolutionaries who came to New York. In 1907, he concluded it was time for him to return to Ireland. The arrival of the, quote, ex-convict and dynamiter was noted by the police. Clark, in turn, noted a new energy in the movement for Irish independence, including the political party Sinn Féin, founded a number of years earlier, which would um, attempt, um, which is a movement for sort of self-reliance in Ireland. It was founded in 1905, and it was... So he wrote to Devoy's assistant that, quote, the young fellows who take the lead in the Sinn Féin movement impress me very much by their earnestness and ability. I'm delighted to find them way above what I expected. And it's interesting that it's, that, it's, that, it's, that, it's, that it's 1907. It's the same year as the publication of Joseph Conrad's A Secret Agent. Both Clark and Conrad had the same problem as to what to do with the revolutionary in a city if you want to give them you know, a home. And, of course, um, Verloc has a shop for soft porn in Soho, meaning furtive-looking men can come and go. The police aren't sure whether they're buying porn or whether they're revolutionaries. In, in Dublin, obviously, you couldn't do the porn part, soft or otherwise, 
so Thomas Clark opened a tobacco shop, which meant that men could go, I mean, slightly furtive looking, uh, and, but nonetheless, there could be traffic all day um, in the shop. And um, um, he was determined to do what he could still to foment rebellion in Ireland. He was dogged and single-minded, but his skills were limited. Although he supported the Irish language movement, he was not an Irish speaker or a student of the language. Although the country he would appeal to was mainly Catholic, he was not religious. He was not a good public speaker. He had no military experience. He was naturally secretive and silent. He had no personal warmth. Because he had spent so much time in prison and then in New York, he had no set of close friends or trusted comrades. His judgment was also flawed. For example, his initial observation of a new energy in Irish nationalism proved to be actually that um, really quite wrong and, and things were much more complex than he imagined. So in other words, it's not possible to draw a single line between Clark's return to Dublin in 1907 and the rebellion taking place nine years later as though one led naturally to the other. This, this is simply not the case. In 1907, politically as much as culturally, Dublin could have seemed what James Joyce called a centre of paralysis rather than a city preparing for revolution. Both the Fenian movement, the old Fenian movement, and the Irish Parliamentary Party seemed to lack energy, and the Fenians were mostly old. The Parliamentary Party had never fully recovered from the fall of Charles Stuart Parnell and the subsequent split. Even the young Sinn Féin movement did not seem to have captured the public imagination. But underneath what appeared as stability and lassitude, however, was an energy in culture life rather than political life that had grown perhaps out of the failure of politics which occurred at the time of the split in the Parliamentary Party over Parnell. One of the people emerging from this sort of new sort of cultural movement was Patrick Pearce. It was born in 1879, the eldest of four children. His father was an English stonemason and church sculptor who came to Dublin in his 20s to establish a successful business. His father died suddenly in 1900 when Pierce was 21. He, had, he and his younger brother, Willie, attempted to keep the business going. Willie tended to follow his older brother's example in everything, including, indeed, revolutionary later, and they spoke to one another throughout their lives in a sort of baby talk. Pierce took a degree in languages at University College Dublin. James Joyce, uh, very briefly, actually became one of his students, um, and then he studied for the bar. But even as a student, he put all his energy into the movement to restore the Irish language. In his late teens, he became a member of the Gaelic League, the organisation founded in 1893 by Owen McNeill and others to promote the use of Irish as a spoken and literary language. By 1904, which is the year that Joyce left Ireland, for example, the Gaelic League had 600 branches with 50,000 members. By the following year, it had 900 branches and 100,000 members. Before he was 20, Patrick Pearce had been co-opted onto the executive council of the Gaelic League and had begun to deliver papers at meetings. The League itself was an acrimonious organisation filled with factions. Pierce managed to function well within the organisation to some extent because he had no close friends among his members. He was a loner. He represented only himself. Also, he was a tireless worker. By 1903, he was elected editor of the League's weekly newspaper, becoming involved in many controversies on behalf of the Irish language, not least with the Catholic bishops over their policy on the language, but also with the British government. By 1904, the newspaper circulation was 174,000, so it remained deeply influential. Some members then of the Gaelic League, um, who were also in the IRB, in the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and in Sinn Féin, they used the League as a Trojan horse. They, for them, culture and nationalism and the language movement itself were just soft ways of assisting with the political movement. But Pierce in those early years was, however, a single-minded language enthusiast and a member of no political organisation. Quote, when the position of Ireland's language as her greatest heritage is once fixed, he wrote, all other matters will insensibly adjust themselves. As it develops, and because it develops, this, this is the language, it will carry all kindred movements with it. Irish music, Irish art, Irish dancing, Irish games and customs, Irish industries, and, and he put at the end, Irish politics. These are, these are worthy objects. Not one of them, however, can be said to be fundamental. Pierce had open differences of opinion with more advanced and militant nationalists. When the Irish Council Bill was proposed by the Liberal government in 1907, for example, the year Thomas Clark returned to Ireland, it offered a home rule to Ireland which was merely partial and thus unacceptable not only to Sinn Féin, but to members 
even moderate members of the Irish Parliamentary Party who took their, who took their seats at Westminster. Pearce, however, supported it because it offered local control over education. And this meant that Irish could be taught, he thought, in more schools and given more prominence within the education system. The English government, he wrote, is unable to settle our grievances for us, for it is unable to understand either us or them. Let us first get control of the education system. Then let us set about solving our problems ourselves. We shall find their solutions wonderfully easy. Now, for figures such as Thomas Clark, who wanted the British simply removed from Ireland before anything else, Pierce's support for small acts of potential reform meant that he could not be trusted. And many readers, indeed, of the Gaelic League newspaper were horrified by Pierce's support for the Irish Council Bill, a piece of legislation which was, in any case, doomed, and they called for his resignation. Pierce had many opinions, some of them bizarre and out of touch, and others progressive and liberal. He believed, for example, that emigrants, people who left Ireland looking for work, were traitors to their country rather than people who could not find work at home. And later, he opposed the introduction of the old age pension, taking the view that in Ireland, the pensioners were selling out to the enemy. When there was discussion about the governing body of a new university, however, Pierce wanted women on the board, and he wrote in favour of, of really having a large representation of women on such boards. But he approved of women only in theory. In practice, he was shy with women and uneasy in their company. Instead, he liked boys, and as with many before and after him, he thus saw fit to set up a school where he could teach boys and spend time with them. There's something both peculiarly innocent and oddly revealing about some of his writings. In a poem from 1909, for example, written in both Irish and English, called Little Lad of the Tricks, Pierce wrote, and I'm not making this up, Little Lad of the Tricks, full well I know that you have been in mischief. Confess your fault truly. I forgive you, child of the soft red mouth. I will not condemn, I will not condemn anyone for a sin not understood. Raise your comely head till I kiss your mouth. If either of us is the better of that, I am the better of it. There is fragrance in your kiss that I have not found yet in the kisses of women or in the honey of their bodies. One former pupil of the school which Pierce eventually sent, set up, St. Enda's, said, Pierce used to kiss the young boys. He tried to kiss me, but I would not have it. Another pupil wrote, Pierce was under a cloud because it was known that he used to kiss boys in his school and then added, Pierce made love to his boy pupils. And since he liked boys then, besides writing about them and, and kissing them, Pierce took a serious interest in their education and their welfare. He wrote... Quote, to me, a boy is the most interesting of all living things, and I have for years found myself coveting the privilege of being in a position to mould or help to mould the lives of boys for noble ends. In February 1908, Pierce sent out a letter looking for financial support for a project of a high school for boys in Dublin on purely Irish-Ireland lines. The building he wanted to use for this purpose was in Rennell in Dublin. The school St Enda's opened in September 1908. By the end of the year, he had 70 boys, including 20 boarders and 24 girls. As numbers increased, he employed more teachers, including the poet and nationalist Thomas Macdonough. And he had studied education systems in places like Belgium, child-centred education and new ways of teaching. And he was, by many accounts, um, an inspired teacher. He disliked corporal punishment, which was widely used elsewhere. One student who had previously been at Jesuit schools wrote, In St Enda's there were no prefects. You were not watched or kept under constant observation. You were put on your honour. And on your first transgression, Pierce called you to his study. You gave your word not to offend again, and you usually kept your word. Although there was religious training in the school, the ancient mythical Irish warrior Cúchulainn was the presiding deity. So much so that he's omnipresent, caused visitors to remark that, quote, the kids in there being taught according to the commandments of Cúchulainn rather than the Ten Commandments of God. Each day after religious devotion, Pierce told a tale from the Cuchulain cycle of stories, you know, filled with violence and, impl and the implacable heroic activities of Cuchulain, operating alone, ready to sacrifice himself um, against anyone who came uh, his way, really. And the boys joked that the, per the pervasive presence of this hero made him an important, if invisible, member of staff.
As with his work for the Gaelic League, Pierce devoted himself totally and wholeheartedly to the school. He didn't draw a salary himself and being highly impractical, impractical constantly had to cajole others to invest money in St. Enda's to keep it going or convince his debtors that the cause for which he owed them money was worthy and noble. Of all the decisions Pierce made, perhaps this decision to move the boys' school from Oakley Road near the centre of Dublin to Rathfarnham on the deep outskirts was the most significant and far-reaching. Oakley Road is situated between Rennell and Rathmines and he would have witnessed the ordinary and busy city. His school was a part of a bustling suburban Dublin. The heroism and example of Cuchulain might have been important in the school itself, but it would have been met with indifference on the road. The hermitage in Rathfarnham, on the other hand, where he Pierce moved his school in 1910, was in 50 acres of woodland and parkland with a river and a lake near its boundary. It had for Pierce a tutelary spirit other than Cuchulain. This was the ghost of Robert Emmett, who had led an, Ill, an ill-fated rebellion in Dublin in 1803 and been publicly executed in the city afterwards. Emmett's death was memorialised in songs by Thomas Moore, a poem by Shelley, and even an elegy written by Berlioz. Emmett's speech from the dock, which ended when my country takes its place among the nations of the earth, then and not till then, let my epitaph be written, was considered a classic of its kind. We all learned it in school. Legend then had it that Emmett and his girlfriend, Sarah Sarah Curran, used to walk in the grounds of the hermitage in Rathfarnham, so Pierce Hayes ghosts. In the centre of Dublin, at the same time, 1910, Thomas Clark, at 62, had two young sons and had opened a second tobacco shop in Parnell Street at the top of O'Connell Street, or Sackville Street as it was then. It became clear to him by now what a moribund organisation the Irish Public Republican Brotherhood really was. And John Redmond, who was the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, because he was beginning to talk about the, uh, once more the possibility of achieving home rule, and he had, begin to, he had begun to dominate political debate in Ireland, to such an extent that, as Clark's biographer has written, Dublin Castle believed that no secret society was active in Ireland at that time and wanted the police to concentrate instead on open organisations like the Gaelic League, the Gaelic Athletic Association and Sinn Féin. In other words, the authorities believed in around 1910, that the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the Fenians, they were not even worth spying on. Clark began to associate with a few younger members of the Brotherhood, most notably Sean McDermott, 26 years his junior, whose gregariousness masked his ability, like Clark, to be secretive and determined. Slowly and with difficulty, and with some luck indeed, Clark and McDermott set about moving into positions of authority within the IRB, Clark almost accidentally slipping into the position of Secretary of the Supreme Council in 1910, McDermott became National Organiser. Early the following year, when McDermott suggested to Thomas Clark that Patrick Pierce could be used to deliver an oration about Robert Emmett, Clark was uneasy. Pierce, he said, he might be a good Gaelic leaguer, but he had never been identified with the separatists. He saw no reason to trust Pierce. But McDermott, according to Clark's wife, told Clark, if you give him the lines you want, he will dress it up in beautiful language. This speech was Pierce's first truly nationalistic speech. And although it sprang from his devotion to Emmett rather than to any revolutionary programme, it demonstrated to men like Clark in the IRB, but especially to Clark, that Pierce had talents that could be useful to them. So he, he proclaimed in this speech, quote, that Dublin would have to do some great act to atone for the failure to produce even one man to dash his head against a stone wall in an attempt to rescue Robert Emmett. Thomas Clark was impressed by Pierce's performance, saying, I never knew there was such stuff in Pierce. While Clark was watchful, as taciturn, determined, unselfconscious, Pierce liked the sound of his own voice and was becoming fascinated by his own image and indeed his own destiny. Desmond Ryan, who studied as a student at St. Enders, remembered Pierce being taunted at a meeting, when once more operating almost in the centre politically, while, you know, being much more interested in the cultural issues, um, he had asked for a more charitable attitude towards the Irish Parliamentary Party. And having been taunted, his response was, yes, give me a hundred men and I will free Ireland. And on the way home to St. Enders in Rathfarnham, he said, let them talk. 
I am the most dangerous revolutionary of the whole lot of them. Pierce's rhetoric then, thereafter, became more messianic and reckless. But he was still aligned with no party, and even as late as 1912 could speak in favour of home rule, which would be a gradualist approach to um, Irish independence and would be, would be still under the crown. And he could speak in favour of this on a platform with John Redmond of the Irish Parliamentary Party. But there was a menace in his tone. He ended his speech with this. If we are tricked again, there is a band in Ireland, and I am one of them, who will advise the Irish people never again to consult with the Gaul, meaning the foreigner, but to answer them with violence on the edge of the sword. Let the English understand that if we are again betrayed, there shall be red war throughout Ireland. On a fundraising tour in America for St. Enda's in the spring of 1913, Pierce was treated by the radical nationalists in America as an important figure, not, not just in Irish education, but in the Irish freedom movement. In other words, he went with good references. And in one speech, he considered how easy it was to imagine how the spirit of Irish patriotism called to various Irish patriots, and he named them, and then said, heroic effort claimed the heroic man. But then he considered the case of Robert Emmett, and he made a distinction, an interesting one, between Emmett and the other patriots, a distinction that he might also have made between himself and a figure such as Thomas Clark. In Emmett, he wrote, it was called to a dreamer, and he woke a man of action. It called to a student and a recluse, and he stood forth a leader of men. It called to one who loved the ways of peace, and he became a revolutionary. Gradually, as Pierce was becoming more political and militant um, in his rhetoric, Thomas Clark was building up a power base within the Irish Republican Brotherhood. But the IRB still remained a minority group, once the possibility of home rule by legislation began to emerge more clearly, Clark was worried about being further marginalised. However, when the Ulster Volunteer Force in what we might call Northern Ireland were set up to oppose home rule, there was a move in Dublin led by Owen McNeill, who had founded the Gaelic League. In other words, once more we're seeing an example of somebody coming in from the cultural side into the political militant side in November 1913, to set up the Irish volunteers who would match the Ulster Volunteer Force. Their declared aim would be to secure and maintain the rights and liberties common to the whole people of Ireland. But essentially, they were a nationalist force. Clark and his comrades put all their energy then into trying to control the volunteers. Of the provisional committee at the beginning, 13 of, out of the 30 were actual members of the Irish Republican Brother, Brotherhood and three, including Patrick Pierce, would soon be sworn in to the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Patrick Pierce was sworn in to the Brotherhood in September, sorry, in December 1913. The rest, of course, were members of Sinn Féin, or they were followers of John Redmond and the Irish Parliamentary Party. By the spring of 1914, the Irish Volunteers had 14,000 members, but membership increased to 100,000 once the Ulster Volunteers Force smuggled close to 25,000 rifles and a large quantity of ammunition into Larne in County Antrim. Thomas Clark wrote to John Devoy in America. John Devoy still operating as the leader of the Irish nationalists in America. Quote, the country is electrified with the volunteering business. Never in my recollection have I known in any former movement anything to compare with the spontaneous rush that is being made all over to get into the movement and start drill and get hold of a rifle. Young fellows who had been regarded as wastrels now have changed to energetic soldiers and are absorbed in the work and taking pride at last. They feel they can do something for their country that will count. It's good to be alive in Ireland these times. And the police now on began to, began to keep a close watch on who was coming and going in Clark's tobacco shop. I mean, the archives give you each time, they, they got a, a vantage point from opposite the shop and noted each person going in and out, including people going in and out to buy cigarettes and tobacco. When the guns had been smuggled in to Larne by the orange men in the north, Patrick Pierce wrote this famous article about arms that made clear how far he had moved from his life as a language enthusiast. This is Pierce. I am glad that orange men have armed, for it is a goodly thing to see arms in Irish hands. I should like to see any and every body of Irish citizens armed. 
We must accustom ourselves to the thought of arms, to the sight of arms, to the use of arms. We may make mistakes at the beginning and shoot the wrong people, but bloodshed is a cleansing and sanctifying thing, and the nation which regards it as the final horror has lost its manhood. There are many things more horrible than bloodshed, and slavery is one of them. Just as Clark wanted to exercise control over the Irish volunteers at the beginning, as I said, he managed to do this. John Redmond from the Irish Parliamentary Party managed, realised that if this moved out of his control, everything would move out of his control. So he proposed a smaller executive for the volunteers that he believed his supporters could dominate. To avoid a split, they suggested a compromise that would give effective control of the volunteers to Redmond and the Irish Parliamentary Party. This was vehemently opposed by Clark and most of his followers, including Pierce, um, while favoured by some weaker or members of the IRB who were ready to compromise, including one of Clark's most trusted allies. When Clark lost, a friend witnessed his response. I had never seen him so moved. He regarded it from the beginning as cold-blooded and contemplated treachery, likely to bring about the destruction of the only movement in the country which brought promise of the fulfilment of all his hopes. During his life, he had many, many very grievous disappointments, but this was the worst, and the bitterness of it was increased by the fact that it was brought about by a trusted friend. In July 1914, when guns were smuggled into Hoth, north of Dublin, for the Irish volunteers, by this time numbering 180,000 men, Clark and McDermott, his ally, they twice filled a taxi with rifles. When the First World War broke out soon afterwards, it was clear to Clark now that this would be the opportunity for a rebellion in Dublin. The slogan being used regularly was England's difficulty, Ireland's opportunity. Um, between, um, between August 1914 and February 1915, however, 50,000 Irishmen volunteered to join the British Army. There was never a conscription in Ireland uh, in the First World War. Everything was, everything was by volunteers. And um, on the 20th of September 1914, in a famous speech, John Redmond called on all Irishmen to join the British Army and fight wherever the firing line extends in defence of right, freedom and religion. And of course, as a result of John Redmond's speech, the Irish volunteers then split. The supporters of Redmond, who became the national volunteers, were the vast majority. About 10,000 men remained active or semi-active in the Irish volunteers, the, the, in other words, the ones who had remained with under, say, Clark's control or semi-control as the war in, in Europe began to intensify. The battle that Clark and his followers now had on their hands was to control this group um, and use whatever influence they had to move towards an armed insurrection in Ireland. Within the leadership of the volunteers especially, but also within the IRB itself, there were some who did not share Clark and McDermott's radicalism. So it wasn't as though there was a single split that on one side joined the British Army and the other side have an insurrection. Even within the other side, the idea of having an insurrection remained a minority idea. Uh, but this seemed, if anything, to sharpen the determination of Clark and McDermott. Clark was slow to make allies. He, he found making enemies easier. And these enemies now included figures in his own movement who were still not sure that the best strategy would be open rebellion. A conference was arranged between leading members of the volunteers and the IRB and James Connolly, who controlled the Irish Citizen Army, which was a small militant left-wing group. Um, Connolly was a Marxist and he saw the war as an opportunity for the Irish working class to liberate itself from Britain. Both Clark and Pierce attended the meeting, which discussed seeking help from Germany for the Irish cause. But it was clear from the enthusiasm with which the war effort was greeted in Ireland, I mean, the, the, I mean the First World War effort, that parts of the country remained much more ambiguous about Britain, or at least much more nonchalant about the struggle for Irish independence than any members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood or the Irish Citizen Army had presumed. Once a crisis broke out, many young men in Ireland saw no great reason not to join the British Army. Britain was merely the supposed enemy. The population of the two countries spoke the same language, after all. They had the same education system and the same administrative system. 
So many Irish people moved back and forth between Ireland and England seeking work. Many in Ireland also had family in England. While most in the south of Ireland actively or tacitly supported home rule, home rule was postponed until the war had ended. It looked now as though the two islands were going to join forces in the war efforts. More than 200,000 Irishmen eventually volunteered. So it appeared, as you can imagine, um, to, to the groups such as the Irish Republican Brotherhood and Sinn Féin and indeed the Gaelic League that they were going to become increasingly marginalised as the war took its course and as the war news captured the imagination of the people. Now, to change this was going to require acts that were radical themselves and imaginative. The transformation needed would, in, would involve a full merging of the single-minded, die-hard politics which Clark stood for, with their roots in the narrow self-sacrifice and violent actions of the dynamiting Fenian movement of the 1860s to the 1880s, with Patrick Pierce's inspirational cultural nationalism, his brilliant oratory, and his increasing interest in following both of his heroes, Cuchulain and Robert Emmett, into early death and martyrdom. It would need then, for starters, anyway, three things. A dead body, a spectacle, and a speech. Clark, Thomas Clark had noted how large the funerals were for the three civilians shot by troops at the time of the Hoth gun running in July 1914. The cortege with the three coffins, headed by 40 priests and controlled by the Irish volunteers, took 70 minutes to pass any given point. The funerals seemed to create rapture and a sense of unity among the people of Dublin. It was the greatest outpouring of grief since the death of Parnell. On the 29th of June 1915, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa, you remember the guy who was drinking and who was sending the dynamiters over to England, he died in his 80s in New York. When John Devoy, once more still there running things, cabled Clark from New York to Dublin, Rossa dead, what shall we do? Clark replied, send his body home at once. In her memoirs, Clark's widow reported him saying, if Rossa had planned to die at the most opportune time for serving his country, he could not have done better. <laughs> in the years since Clark had seen the old Fenian in New York, O'Donovan Rossa had, had been given much, much given to tours when he recalled his prison days. He'd even returned to Ireland for a time to take up a sinecure offered to him by Cork County Council. The day after his death, the Irish Times wrote, there was a time in Ireland when his death would have created a sensation. But it is no exaggeration to say that today there are many who had almost forgotten his existence. Thomas Clark understood, however, what could be done with the last of the original Fenians, especially one whom very few people in Ireland had known personally. And O'Donovan Ross had not been involved in the bitter local disputes. In other words, people had, hadn't learned to hate him personally that dogged the Republican movement in Ireland over the previous decade. Once he was dead, he could become all legend. He could be remembered as the man who had served years in an English prison. He could be commemorated as someone who had held out for Irish freedom in a dark time. Those who knew O'Donovan Rossa better than Clark did, or had better memories, such as John Devoy himself in New York, however, made their reservations clear about the old Fenian, even after his death. He began to sacrifice himself, Devoy wrote, his family and his interests at the very inception of the movement, and he continued it to his last conscious hour. Often the sacrifice was wholly unnecessary, even unwise, but Rossa believed it was called for and never hesitated or counted the cost. But Clark was having none of this prevarication as he began to prepare a spectacular funeral. He set up subcommittees to organise the event and the, head, the heads of those included many of the men who would the following year become leaders of the 1916 rebellion. Clark moved Thomas McDonough, who had been a teacher at St Enda's, but was now a lecturer in English at University College Dublin into the, a central position as organiser of the funeral. It was agreed that the funeral procession would include not only the Irish volunteers and the Irish citizen army and members of the Gaelic Athletic Association, but also Redmond's national volunteers. It would be the last time these four organisations would march together. The coffin arrived in Liverpool, which was a problem, so it was arranged that it be carried from the ship to the boat on Irish shoulders, thus ensuring that it would not touch English soil, even for a moment. McDonough um, magically had arranged, after an argument with the Archbishop of Dublin, that the coffin would be brought first 
to the pro-cathedral in Dublin on Tuesday, 27th of July, where prayers would be said, followed by Mass the next day. Even though the Fenians, with their oath of secrecy, were anathema to the Catholic, Catholic Church and were excommunicated, no one could be left out of this solemn stage management. The body was brought there on Tuesday. Mass was on Wednesday morning. Then the body was brought to City Hall on Dame Street and was draped with the tricolour of the Irish Republic, where it was held, uh, and the body was held there until the funeral on Sunday, the 1st of August. So from Wednesday to Sunday, it was held there. There was a glass opening in the coffin so that the estimated 100,000 people who came to pay their respects could see the dead man's face. There were queues from City Hall on Dame Street as far as George's Street. The coffin was protected by a guard of honour led by Edward Daly, the younger brother of Kathleen Clark, wife of Thomas Clark. When Clark invited Patrick Pierce to give the oration over the grave of O'Donovan Rosso, the response confirmed what Sean McDermott, who was, by the way, at this time in prison under the defence of the Realm Act because he'd been arrested from a platform for saying openly, he said, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Instead of thinking it, he had said it, and they arrested him. So, and what he had told Clark in 1911, he said to Clark, if you give Pierce the lines you want, he will dress it up in beautiful language. Pierce asked Clark what tone he should take in his oration, and Clark told him that he wanted the oration to be, quote, as hot as hell. Pierce, he suggested, should, quote, throw discretion to the winds. On leaving City Hall... In Dublin, the funeral cortege took a most circuitous route. The day was warm. It was estimated that 200,000 people lined the streets of Dublin to see it pass. Special trains had been arranged for those who wished to travel to Dublin for the spectacle. I mean, if anyone thinks that this sounds like an episode from Joyce's Cyclops um, chapter of Ulysses, it does because Joyce obviously was completely alert to this as he was writing Cyclops, where he even mentions the name of O'Donovan Rossa in the Cyclops episode. And um, special trains, um, he mentioned special trains and cyclops to, to wish to see the spectacle. Um, when the leaders of the procession arrived at Glasnevin Cemetery, the site of the graves of Parnell and, and also of some of the Fenian leaders, um, which of course uh, the opening chapter, or the, sorry, the second chapter of Ulysses, the funeral is also going to Glasnevin, it took two hours more for the coffin itself to enter the graves, to enter the gates of the cemetery. Now there, now, there are many accounts of the day in the Bureau of Military History in Dublin. The Bureau of Military History has become the sort of um, thing that everybody uses, where in the 1940s, de Valera was concerned that the memory of what happened between 1916 and 1922 w- would so, soon move out of living memory. And so he organised the army, the Irish army, to go around Ireland taking down statements of any length anyone wanted who had been involved of what they saw, what they remembered, and they would be locked away until everyone was dead. They were opened about 10 years ago. So this is a sort of treasure trove of information. Uh, um, and if you just Google in, um, um, the, the, I, mean, I mean, they emphasise things like the significant, that the extraordinary perfection of the organisation and the fact that the Irish volunteers, meaning, meaning the old, you know, non-ones who didn't support the First World War, they were actually armed going through the city. And the national volunteers, the Redmond volunteers, on the other hand, were not armed. Joseph McCarthy from Wexford, for example, noted, quote, the slow march of the volunteers passing through the city conveyed to everyone the significance of a real national army. The wail of the laments from the Piper's bands and the music of the brass bands mingled with the slow and rhythmic beat of the steps of the marching men re-echoed up the quiet streets to joining the route and through the open squares. Pierce. Patrick Pierce wrote his oration in Rossmock in Connemara in the west of Ireland, where he built a cottage in 1909. By August the 1st, he had learnt it by heart. It ended as follows. Life springs from death, and from the graves of patriot men and women spring living nations. The defenders of this realm have worked well in the secret and in the open. They think they have pacified Ireland. They think they have purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. They think they have foreseen everything, think they have provided against everything. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. When Pierce had finished, a voice from the crowd shouted, Say it again! And then, doesn't he speak like a priest? The oration one witness, one witness remembered soon became the favourite recitation at concerts and social entertainments all over the country. 
I've, this is the quote, still quoting, I've heard it recited in railway journeys to hurling and football matches. But what happened immediately after the oration was, it seems, when you look at the, when, when you look at the documents in the um, Bureau of Military History, as impressive as the speech itself, volleys were fired over the grave. This must have been one of the very few occasions, one witness said, on which this military demonstration took place in our lifetime. And that too, in its way, made a deep impression, not alone on all those who were present, but who heard the news afterwards. The following day, the Irish Independent newspaper wrote, The Old Order Changeth. Father Michael Curran, the Secretary to the Archbishop of Dublin, remembered the event as the date that publicly revealed that a new political era had begun. He believed that the supremely impressive moment was the triple volley fired by the volunteers. This represented more than a farewell to the old Fenian. It was a defiance to England by a new generation in Ireland. Desmond Ryan, who admired Pierce, remembered him as the speech came to an end. Quote, beside the grave he stood, impressive and austere in green, with slow and intense delivery. As he, as he, and as he cried aloud upon the fools, he threw back his head sharply and the expression seemed to vivify the speech, which ended calmly and proudly. Another image with which Ryan ended that chapter of, of his book, which is a memoir, um, however, seems even more significant than this description of Pierce's performance itself. This is Ryan. This is Pierce. He, Pierce walked home alone and sat in his study. At last he had spoken the just word he sought to immortalise a man less great than himself. In other words, when Ryan saw Pierce that evening at St. Anders, Pierce was alone. After the speech he had not associated with any group, or gone to eat or have a drink with others. He'd returned to Rathfarnham on his own. He did not have a group of peers or supporters. And when Ryan found him, Pierce asked him for a loan of 10 shillings. Pierce's impracticality only added to his mystique, his solitude, his not leading a faction within the volunteers or the Irish Republican Brotherhood, gave him even more power as he determined that there would soon be a rebellion. He was not interested in anyone else's opinion. Um, what he had begun to plan, in fact, was his own death. Early in 1916, when he was asked for a portrait of himself for the cover of a pamphlet about Robert Emmett, which supporters in Enniscorthy wanted to publish, he wrote, I think a portrait of Emmett would be better as well as handsomer on the cover. After I'm hanged, my portrait will be interesting, but not before. I should say this business of being hanged is interesting, that in the GPO in 1916, when they finally did have the rebellion, the, the rebels were unsure whether they were going to be shot or hanged at the end. And one of them went around to everybody and said, do you think we'll be shot or do you think we'll be hanged? Um, between the O'Donovan Ross funeral in, in August 1915 and Easter week 1916, an internal dispute went on within the ranks of the volunteers and the IRB. In January 1916, James Connolly of the Citizen Army was co-opted under the Military Council of the IRB, a body that had come into being the year before. Clark, McDermott and Pierce were also members. The plan to organise a rebellion on Easter Sunday 1916 was not shared with, se with senior members of the Irish Volunteers, such as Owen McNeill, who I mentioned earlier in relation to the founder of the Gaelic League and the, founder, the actual founder of the Irish Volunteers, and he, because he would have opposed such an idea. Rather, it was shared among people whom Clark and Pierce believed they could trust, most of whom had been sworn into the IRB. Preparations for the rising remained then, for the most part, a matter of rumour or were kept secret. This became both a strength and a weakness. It meant that the news of plans was unlikely to reach Dublin Castle with any degree of certainty, or indeed reach those within the volunteers who could put a stop to these preparations. But it also meant that the numbers involved in any rebellion would be low, and no matter what happened, there would be confusion over who had control. The plan depended on arms from Germany arriving in Ireland. On Good Friday, the 1916, the authorities intercepted the landing of arms off the coast of County Kerry from Germany, and they arrested Roger Casement, who had arrived from Germany by submarine. During the three or four days before the rebellion, Owen McNeill, who again was chief of staff of the volunteers, he sought constant clarification about the intentions of his, most ex of his more extreme colleagues. When he discovered that there was a plan for general mobilisation on Easter Sunday at 4pm, he held a meeting on the Saturday evening at which he announced that he had come to the conclusion that the enterprise was madness, would mean a slaughter of unarmed men, and that he felt it his bounden duty to try and stop it. 
He issued a countermanding order, which was reported in the press on Easter Sunday morning. Those who had favoured the rebellion occurring on Easter Sunday were devastated. One volunteer reported, it was the first and only time I saw Sean McDermott really upset, angry and upset. James Connolly's daughter remembered her father's response. The tears ran down his face. Are we not going to fight now, he said. The only thing we can do is pray for an earthquake to come and swallow us up in our shame. At a meeting of the military council held on Easter Sunday morning, Thomas Clark, implacable as ever, wanted to go ahead with the rebellion as planned. But it was agreed that it should be postponed by one day. Thomas McDonough, who was a poet and, and, and could deal with these things better than most, was detailed to go to see Owen McNeil and to dupe him into believing that the plans for the rebellion had been completely cancelled. And at 8pm on Easter Sunday, Patrick Pierce dispatched couriers throughout the country with a simple message. We start operations at noon today, Monday. Carry out your instructions. On Easter Monday, then the rebels took the general post office in Dublin. A republic was declared. Fifty years later, Kathleen Clark, the widow of Thomas Clark, um, who was still alive, wrote that it was her husband, not Pierce, who was president of this short-lived republic. Pierce, she said, quote, had wanted to grab what was due to others. Surely Pierce should have been satisfied with the honour of commander-in-chief when he knew as much about commanding as my dog. <laughs> it was Pierce, however, dog or no dog, who read the proclamation. A, a thousand copies of which had been printed that morning in front of the General Post Office in Dublin. Its seven signatories included Pierce, Clark, McDonough, McDermott. Now that he had moved into the real world of military action and out of the realm dominated by his imagination, Patrick Pierce's oratorical orator skills seemed to fail him, or, or maybe just his audience was different. One witness recalled there was very little noise in the street as he read the proclamation, practically silent. The crowd numbered about 200. And I'm sure that many of them didn't recognise the significance of what Pierce was saying. His voice didn't carry too well. and It was difficult to hear him. He had the document of the proclamation in his hand, standing between the columns of the general post office, in the middle on what I judged to be a chair. But there, but, but there was no reaction. When he had finished, the crowd melted. Another witness reported, slowly the crowd broke up. Quite a few bored with the whole affair, till he turned and wandered away. The writer Stephen McKenna recorded that people simply listened and shrugged their shoulders or sniggered a little and then glanced around to see if the police were coming. Within a week, however, the Chicago Tribune reported that when Pierce had finished, thundering shouts rent the air, lasting for many minutes. The cries were taken all along Sackville Street and the adjoining thoroughfares. Now, what happened on Easter Monday, as we know, is open to interpretation. As a military event, it almost makes no sense. Taking St. Stephen's Green, for example, which is you know, surrounded on four sides, and not Dublin Castle, suggests poor planning and lack of strategic thinking. As Fergal McGarry asks in his book, The Rising, was The Rising an attempted coup d'etat or an irrational blood sacrifice? In other words, did what happened arise from Clark's strategy, however ham-fisted and badly thought out, to take power in Ireland by use of arms? Or did it take its bearings from Pierce's more messianic and dreamy illusions to have a small number sacrifice themselves at Easter, thus to inspire a larger number to have resonance rather than resolution? Over the last hundred years, there have been much discussion about the rebellion in Dublin that began on that Easter Monday and ended with unconditional surrender on the following Saturday and involved the destruction of the city centre and the deaths of almost 500 people, the majority um, of them civilians, some of them children. Very quickly after the rebellion ended, what Fergal McGarry calls, quote, a powerful narrative emerged. The rising was seen as an heroic fight by selfless patriots who had recklessly taken on the might of the British Empire. The nobility of their cause and vindictiveness of the British response resurrecting a quiescent Irish nation. From the 1916 rising, this narrative went, came the rise of Sinn Féin, the Sinn Féin party, to a spectacular victory in the 1918 election where they wiped out the Irish Parliamentary Party and, of course, the guerrilla war against Britain and then Irish independence. More recent historians have offered um, other narratives. Peter Hart, for example, called the rebellion, quote, a unique example of insurrectionary abstract art and went on, the surprise, the proclamation, the tricolour, the seized buildings of barricades were all there but the target seemed almost purely symbolic or even arbitrary. 
Instead of the arsenal, city hall or barracks, they occupied a post office, a bakery, a public park. There was probably some military rationale involved. It's hard to tell since no record of the plan has survived. But there was certainly no intention of seizing power. Another historian, David Fitzpatrick, has commented on the civilian casualties. Quote, by raising their tricolour in the centre of the main shopping area and close to Dublin's northside slums, the rebels ensure, in, in, ensured massive human and material losses once their position was attacked. It is difficult to avoid the inference that Republican strategists were intent upon provoking maximum bloodshed, destruction and coercion in the hope of resuscitating Anglo- Irish Anglophobia and clawing back popular support for their discredited military programme. The British were surprised by the rebellion. Later, it would emerge the quality of the intelligence they had about the leaders was, to say the least, unimpressive. This would become apparent very quickly in, say, their efforts to interrogate Owen McNeill, the very one who tried to stop the rebellion, whom they arrested on the charge of being a rebel. They, they, they followed, um, even though he'd signed the countermanding order, even though it had been in the newspaper, they still arrested him on the charge of being a rebel. They followed earlier failure then with a sudden burst of energy, handing over effective power in Ireland to the military, arresting 3,430 men and 79 women and raiding many houses throughout the country. In this series of court-martials, they sentenced 90 rebels to be shot. Fifteen of these sentences were quickly carried out. The charge for this was that the rebels had been waging war against His Majesty the King with the intention and for the purpose of assisting the enemy. Among those, so in other words, they saw it entirely in the context of the First World War. Among those shot by firing squad were Pierce, Clark, McDonough, McDermott, Edward Daly, the brother of Clark's wife. The day after they shot Patrick Pierce, they also threw in and shot his brother Willie, even though Willie Pierce had not been a leader of the rebellion and the authorities had no particular evidence against him as a leader. They, this is significant uh, more than anything, perhaps. They did not return the bodies to the families. Instead, they buried them in quicklime and without coffins. As early as the 3rd of May, which is the day that Clark, Pierce, and McDonough were shot, John Redmond of the Irish Parliamentary Party, he, he protested to Asquith, the Prime Minister, that, quote, if any more executions take place in Ireland, the position will become impossible for any constitutional party or leader. On the 8th of May, the Viceroy, Lord Wimburn, warned Major General Sir John Maxwell, who had come to Ireland on the 28th of April as military governor, therefore had full authority, he warned him of possible disastrous consequences arising from the executions. On the same day, John Dillon, who after the death of John Redmond, he would become the last leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, and as I said, would be wiped out in the 1918 election, he told General Maxwell... Quote, it, it really would be difficult to exaggerate the amount of mischief the executions are doing. On the 10th of May, the Prime Minister Asquith sent instructions to Dublin that no further executions are to take place until further orders. In the House of Commons on the 11th of May, John Dillon told the government what would happen next. You are doing everything conceivable to madden Irish people, he said. If Ireland were governed by men out of bedlam, you could not pursue a more insane policy. As Charles Townsend has written in his book, Easter 1916, quote, in terms seldom if ever heard in Parliament, Dylan reiterated and amplified the warning he'd issued to Maxwell. You are washing out our whole life work in a sea of blood. What is poisoning the mind of Ireland and rapidly poisoning it is the secrecy of these trials and the continuance of these executions. Thousands of people in Dublin, Dylan said, who were bitterly opposed to the whole Sinn Féin movement and the rebellion are now becoming infuriated against the government. Dylan asked the Prime Minister to stop the executions. This series of executions, he said, is doing more harm than any Englishman in this house can possibly fathom. The men being executed, he said, were not guilty of murder. Rather, they were, quote, insurgents who have fought a clean fight, a brave fight, however misguided. As English MPs began to heckle him in Parliament, Dylan who was a constitutional nationalist and had no connections with the rebels, and he was an absolute supporter of the First World War effort, said, it would be a damn good thing for you if your soldiers were able to put up as good a fight as these men did in Dublin. He was, he said, proud of their courage. And if you were not so dense and stupid as some of you English people are, you could have had these men fighting for you. Despite his warning and the Prime Minister's instructions, James Connolly 
and Sean McDermott were shot on the 12th of May the following day. Since Connolly had been injured in the rebellion, they had to put him sitting in a chair to shoot him. And as we know, if there are Irish people here, we could all sing you the ballads about Connolly being Connolly shot in the chair. Um, as late as the 3rd of August, Roger Casement was hanged in London. Um, 1,600 prisoners were moved from Ireland to England. They were being held as, quote, enemy aliens, which was some consider strange since they were indisputably British citizens, or would be until six years later when the British left Southern Ireland, having made every further mistake possible, losing the support of the Catholic Church, continuing the threat of conscription, and sending a force known as the Black and Tans, who were not known for their restraint or discipline, to attempt to pacify the country. As early as mid-May 1916, as Charles Townsend writes, the forces of law and order in Ireland began reporting, quote, a significant sign in sudden unfriendliness or even hostility towards the police. Throughout Leinster, they noted popular sympathy for the rebels is growing. And in Munster, sympathy among all nationalists is becoming intensified in favour of the rebels arrested or sentenced. On the 17th of May, having been provoked by General Maxwell, Bishop O'Dwyer of Limerick made clear that the British had lost whatever support they had from the Irish Catholic hierarchy. You took great care that no plea of mercy should interpose on behalf of those poor fellows who surrendered to you in Dublin, he wrote to Maxwell. The first information we got of their fate was the announcement that they had been shot in cold blood. The bishop condemned the deporting of hundreds and even thousands of poor fellows without a trial of any kind, which he called an abuse of power as fatuous as it is arbitrary. He added, your regime has been one of the worst and blackest chapters of of the misgovernment of the country. Early in June, Maxwell, General Maxwell, told the Prime Minister of, quote, a growing disposition on every possible occasion in favour of Sinn Féinism or Republicanism at masses for the repose of the souls of the executed rebels, at the arrival or departure of released or deported suspects, on their return to their native towns that people are they're seized upon to demonstrate. He was particularly bothered, Charles Townsend writes, by the extremist ladies who with priests, he said, quote, were difficult to handle. He told Asquith's private secretary, the Irish are impossible people. Even if they were to get home rule, there will always be a large number again the government, whatever it may be. By the time they sat in their prison cells, in the early hours of May the 3rd, 1916, awaiting execution, it was clear that Clark, Thomas Clark and Patrick Pierce had divided England and Ireland in ways that would come to matter. They appeared to the British as supremely treacherous. They had stabbed the country in the back during a time of war, causing immense destruction to life and property. They had made their willingness to treat openly with the enemy against whom so many Irishmen had volunteered to fight and in a war in which so many were still dying. In his court-martial statement, Patrick Pierce said, quote, I admit having opened negotiations with Germany. We have kept our word with her, and as far as I can see, she did her best to help us. See, she sent a ship with arms. And in that week of the rebellion, to take just one example, 570 men from the 16th Irish Division were killed at Hullock on the Western Front. It's hard to imagine if viewed from the British side, what else could have been done with the leaders of rebellion? It must have seemed not only natural, but just and right to shoot them. But the rebels appeared to the Irish side in a totally different light. The stark divergence in this after image, the creation of this deep fissure between England and Ireland, was perhaps the rebels' real achievement. Thomas Clark was seen in Ireland as a man prematurely aged from his years in English prisons, a man who had remained dedicated to a cause that was often unpopular. Patrick Pierce was a poet a language enthusiast and a teacher. Clark and Pierce and their followers, despite their fanaticism, had somehow managed to present themselves in Ireland as noble spirits, serious people who had made no personal profits from their politics and then lost everything. Their fellow citizens had grown used to them. They were almost familiar. And once they were shot, they became, as W.B. Yeats suggested, changed, utterly or oddly heroic. Their last words and deeds were recorded and became part of our culture. In his cell on the night before his execution, Pierce composed a poem about the beauty of the world, which we all learned in school 50 years after his death. He also wrote a letter to his mother. And in the letter he said, I have just received Holy Communion. I'm happy except for the great grief of parting from you. This is the death I should have asked for if God had given me the choice of all deaths, to die a soldier's death for Ireland 
and for freedom. By the time Thomas Clark was sentenced, his wife had also been arrested and was being held at Dublin Castle. Some hours before he was to be shot, she was taken to his cell. Outside, a priest asked her to allow him to see her husband. He seemed to have been put out of the cell. And she said, oh, I've I've never interfered with my husband in anything he thinks right, she said. And I'm not going to begin now. If he will not see you, he has his reasons. She spent an hour with Clark in a cell illuminated by a candle held by a soldier. She wrote in her memoirs that when she asked her husband what had happened with the priest, he told me that the priest had wanted him to say he was sorry for what he had done. If he did not, of course, say sorry, the priest was going to refuse him absolution. Clark said, she wrote, I told him to clear out of my cell quickly. I was not sorry for what I had done. I gloried in it and the men who had been with me. To say I was sorry would be a lie, and I was not going to face my God with a lie on my tongue. Thomas Clark, however, was attended by two priests before being shot. He died a Catholic. But he was as resolute as ever in his diehard nature as he gave his last wishes to his wife. And one of them was about Owen McNeil, the head of the Irish volunteers who had countermanded the order for the, 19th, for, for the, for the, for the rebellion on Easter Sunday. Quote, I want you to see to it, his wife reported him, saying that our people know of his treachery to us. He must never be allowed back into the national life of the country. For so sure as he is, so sure he will act treacherously in a crisis. He is a weak man, but I know every effort will be made to whitewash him. All the families gave accounts of the last hours of the rebels. They made sure to emphasise that their loved ones, including the Marxist James Connolly, had seen priests before they were shot. They also included as much sad detail as they could. I had to stand there at the cell door, Kathleen Clark wrote, while the soldier locked the door of what seemed to be my husband's tomb. How I held myself together with my head up, I do not know. I must have been turned to stone. But the sound of that key in that lock has haunted me ever since. Thanks for listening. For our best subscription offers, visit lrb.me forward slash pod.